In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. How's it going, everybody? Two of Plato's dialogues center on the trial and imprisonment of Socrates by the city of Athens, and they are named Apology and Crito. Here's what we're going to cover on today's episode. A summary of Apology, the charges, and the defense. Our comments on the trial of Socrates. The victory of falsehood and the impotence of reason. Then we'll go to a summary of Crito, major themes, a review of his reasons and our opinions on those reasons, the wit and humor of Socrates in the face of death, and finally, should everyone read these dialogues, and why are they the first books assigned in the great books of the Western world reading plan? So first up, a summary of Apology, the Charges, and the Defense. Socrates is on trial for impiety and corruption of the youth. He defends himself by pointing out that he worships the Olympian gods and received an oracle from Delphi that changed his life and set him on a mission to seek wisdom from any and all people. He stumps the prosecutor by catching him in a contradiction. The prosecutor accuses Socrates of both atheism and worshiping foreign gods. Additionally, Socrates argues that rich young Athenians follow and impersonate him because they have nothing better to do and enjoy embarrassing the haughty adults. Socrates is condemned by a slim margin. He says his quote-unquote punishment should be free meals provided by the polis for life. They laugh at this idea and propose death as the sentence. Socrates assents to paying a fine offered by his followers, but refuses exile since he would consider that worse than death. They decide to make him kill himself. He will not grovel or use emotionalism to try to change their minds. However, He will be replaced by many more gadflies, as he calls them, more annoying than him. He bears no ill will towards his accusers or the jury. He asks the Athenians to correct his sons if they value wealth more than virtue or abandon humility. Now here are some notable quotes. First, I thought to myself, I am wiser than this man. Neither of us probably knows anything that is really good, but he thinks he has knowledge when he has not while I, having no knowledge, do not think I have. Men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you, and while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice and teaching of philosophy. Understand that I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. Socrates also said, For to fear death, my friends, is only to think ourselves wise without really being wise, for it is to think we know what we do not know. For no one knows whether death may not be the greatest good that can happen to a man, but men fear it as if they knew quite well that it was the greatest of evils. The unexamined life is not worth living. One thing only I know, and that is that I know nothing. Next, and this is in regards to him being a gadfly, all day long I will never cease to settle here, there, and everywhere, Rousing, persuading, and reproving every one of you. Next, there is no man who will preserve his life for long, either in Athens or elsewhere, if he firmly opposes the multitude, 
and tries to prevent the commission of much injustice and illegality in the state. Now, which would you say is your favorite of those quotes? What really jumps out at you? The unexamined life is not worth living. Do you think that um, that might be like the hallmark of this? Like, like if there's one thing you remember about Socrates, it's probably the I know nothing quote, but also the unexamined life. And um, I think he really was a trailblazer there. Yeah, I I don't really, unless I'll, I'll rephrase this. Um, I disagree with the kind of people who go through life and don't ask the big questions, which is a lot of people. A lot of people, surprisingly, don't want to get into these big questions, even though they're very important personally and socially for everything. So here are some of our comments on the trial. Uh, as for me, I, I thought that Socrates made a great case, and he is a gifted orator if what we uh, read is almost word for word, which we have reason to believe that it is very, very close. Uh, he's effectively being canceled by the Athenians, accused of some great harm for no good reason, and they couldn't really offer up any evidence that he was doing any great harm. Um, and it may be the earliest example, at least in the Western tradition, of you can't fight City Hall. He definitely lost, but as we'll talk about later on, maybe he got the last laugh. Now, one interesting point here, uh, in the preface before the trial, Socrates discusses the nature of piety with a young man, Euthyphro, who is on his way to court as well. The young man is suing his father for murdering a slave, who was himself a murderer, uh, claiming that two wrongs don't make a right, and it is his duty to punish his father for a crime, regardless of his relationship to his father. Socrates questions this and concludes that the man's definition of piety is lacking, and that his station in life as a son matters more than his opinion of his father's actions. This begs the question, what is piety? For that very question comes into play at the trial. Socrates admits he neglected the activities normal men partake in, like politics, business ventures, farming, social clubs, military commands, which one would argue is impious, as a good citizen should partake in these activities to better themselves and their community. But Socrates admits that his brutal honesty and his divine quest for wisdom given through the oracle would have prevented him from doing any good in those pursuits. So by neglecting them, he was actually being pious, by refraining from doing harm to Athens through failure in normal endeavors. So what's your take on that, Evan? Now, I'd, I'd say yeah, I'd agree if the story of the oracle is true. Obviously, following the will of the oracle and his worldview would be pious. I mean, that's like the definition of piety is to follow God's will. So yeah, he has a good point there. And you, you would say that he made the right decision to forego the matters of a normal man in order to pursue that divine command? I mean, he was somehow supporting himself and his family. So it, I guess it, it might have not been the most prudent. But if you feel a vocation to just go around and pester Athenians for 50 years, then maybe that's what you should do. Yeah, and that is an interesting point I'll bring up real quick before we move on, that this went on for a long time. They put up with him for a long time. Why do you think they did that? I guess you, you can't just kill people for no reason. I guess they had to build a case against him, right? But, I mean, what kind of case did they even really build? He, they probably just ignored him for a while, and then maybe he started accusing someone that mattered that wanted to fight back. Oh, yeah, accusing them of not being wise or not yeah. being who they really were. Yeah. Yep. So next we can move on to the victory of falsehood and the impotence of reason. 
Things don't always have a storybook ending. Justice is not always upheld in this life. Sometimes the unjust live long lives, and the just are cut down early. Only the good die young, as some great philosophers say. Or is this true? What do you think? Um, I don't know. I, I hesitate to uh, agree with Billy Joel, but um, sometimes it does happen because the good tend to stand for something. And when you stand for something, you will make enemies. And when you make enemies, your life will sometimes be in danger. And the people who are bad don't really stand for anything. And they can just run away and be cowards. And they never, if they don't want to, they don't have to face anyone or stand for their beliefs. So they can easily escape persecution by just believing in something else, changing their mind, right? So there definitely is a motivation or at least I'll say this, there definitely is a greater chance that if you are good, you will be harmed or killed. So yeah, I, I generally agree that, yeah, it's more dangerous to be a good guy and stand on your principles because so many people are unprincipled and they don't like that. Yeah, I can see why you'd say that. I'd say in a just society, um, the good would live prosperous lives. They'd be rewarded either by the law or social custom for being virtuous and the unvirtuous would be punished legally or socially in an ideal system yeah yeah but the truth is like many systems are unjust or at least partially unjust to where sometimes there's incentives to be unjust for individuals sure like uh how in many countries south of the border you just pay police officers to get out of a ticket and you know the police officers will look at it the other way or uh there's corruption in government you know i scratch your back you scratch mine and you know i'll rub shoulders with underground uh, or the cartels or whoever, you know, criminals, criminal organizations. And yeah, there's a lot of room for corruption in many places. I think even on a religious note, um, this kind of goes to prosperity gospel because you don't want to say the opposite, that justice is always upheld and people, good people always get the best outcome in life because obviously that's not true. Look at Jesus. Okay. Yes. He made it to 33. Yeah, the best guy ever, right, according to the faith. like Truly perfect guy, and look how he was treated. Exactly. So we're no Joel Osteen over here. Oh, yeah, hold on. I, I, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. I got to patch up a hole where I'm hiding my, what, $600,000 or something? No comment. Hey, but one thing's for sure. Somalia is a paradise. I think we can all agree on that, right? So I mean, libertarian utopia. If you hate government so much, just move to Somalia. Yeah, you'll find justice there, guaranteed. Ignoring the afterlife which Plato claims Socrates believed in, what can we say about the legacies of Socrates and his accusers? Well, everyone has heard of Socrates, but only the biggest philosophy nerds have ever heard of Anitus, his archenemy. So Socrates gets the last laugh. However, it must be acknowledged that Socrates did suffer injustice when he was found guilty and forced to commit suicide. That, in our opinion, was the wrong was the wrong call. Wow. Yeah. That's just a very brave stance to take. Yeah, hot take. They were wrong to kill Socrates. I just want to get out there ahead of that and just and and put it out there for the world to hear. I don't care who who dislikes me for it. Now let's turn to another analysis of our second book, Crito. Socrates' friend Crito stops by his prison cell after he's been condemned to death. He offers to arrange an escape for Socrates. Socrates should accept this plan, according to Crito, because a lot of people would miss him if he died, his family would suffer, P 
People would think that Crito was too miserly to help Socrates. The multitude can inflict the greatest of evils, and Crito is willing to suffer for this feat. Socrates rejects the offer on multiple grounds. First, running away would ruin his legacy and make it seem like he was guilty or ashamed. Second, death is either a great thing, as in getting to hang out in Hades and talk with other souls forever, his dream, or neutral, being relieved from suffering and finally getting to rest. Third, Socrates is already 70 years old and an escape would only elongate his life by a few years. Fourth, he would be forced into exile from another city or have to keep his mouth shut. The latter he finds basically sinful, because the Delphic Oracle charged him with finding truth at all costs. Fifth, he would risk the freedom and lives of the conspirators and his family. Sixth, he argues that everything that happens is the will of the gods, and the state is the arbiter of the laws, and laws are sacred. Crito gives up his attempt and leaves Socrates to his doom. Here are some good quotes uh, from that section. Not life, but a good life, ought to be chiefly valued. Injustice is always an evil, and dishonor to him who acts unjustly. We therefore must do no wrong, neither injury nor retaliation nor warding off of evil by evil is just. Do you imagine that a state can subsist and not be overthrown, in which the decisions of law have no power, but are set aside and overthrown by individuals? Then, think not of life and children first, and of justice afterwards, but of justice first, that you may be justified before the princes of the world below. So let's cover some major themes. Uh, the multitude is fickle and irrational. That's a big one. Uh, men should only care about the opinions of wise men. If you want to be a good gymnast, only listen to a good trainer. Likewise, for wisdom. You wouldn't just go to some Joe Blow for some wisdom. Go to somebody who is wise, who has proven that their wisdom works. Same for weightlifting. Uh, better to die honorably than live dishonorably. Strive for a good life, not a long life. Never do harm. Returning evil for evil is unjust. Avoid evil at all costs. Social contract theory. If you decide to stay in a certain city, you have implicitly agreed to follow its laws. One can try to persuade the state to change, though. Obey the laws. States cannot subsist if laws are not obeyed or enforced. Despite this, there is a higher law than human law. One's legitimate conscience must have priority over laws. For Socrates, that meant that he would never stop being the gadfly in Athens. To cease being a philosopher would be an affront to his, his conscience and a violation of his commission by the oracle. For me, that means that I will not directly endorse an evil like LGBTQ plus ideology, God willing, but it does mean that he must follow all laws that don't go against his conscience, even if they're stupid, and he must pay his taxes. The same goes for us. Now, does this reasoning of Socrates only apply if the state possesses divine right? If the state exists without divine right, then it is just another man-made institution. Now, one could counter that argument and claim that God made man and man made institutions. Therefore, all institutions are made by God, perhaps only indirectly, but they are permitted to exist by God. But that's a bit of a stretch because if you go that route, then everything is legitimate and must be obeyed. And few would agree with that, with that just blanket statement, everything must be obeyed because it exists in God's universe. So what's the solution to that? And we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later on, too, when we get to the finer points of what Socrates was telling Crito. But what do you say to that, Evan? My answer may not be like his, but 
I'm assuming that he means that the passive will of the gods or God um, means that if there is a political institution over the people that the people should follow it and that God's allowing it to exist. It is your government. Government is necessary for the good of society. Therefore, follow your government. That's what I'm assuming is his stance. I would have to read all of the Platonic dialogues to really, you know, f- finally finish the Republic for once to be able to <laughs> uh, to find out what his answer is to that. It's, yeah. it's tricky. Do you agree with it? Right. I mean, just at its face, right there. We're gonna get to it a little later. Yeah. But um, kind of. Yes. All right. The divine right of kings is a new concept in the course of history. It's a new concept. Kind of goes back to the English kings. It really got strengthened after the Protestant Reformation. It's more Protestant than Catholic, I'll say. I don't agree with divine right of kings in that they have the authority to just do whatever they want. They're under God, like everybody. So they can do what they want, but so long as they don't violate God's laws or God's intentions, God's will. Or try to run counter to it. Yeah, I mean, that's what every ruler should do anyway. But to say that God personally picked them to be the king, I mean, kind of, in a way, but not in the way they're trying to make it, I guess. It's complicated. It is. We'll 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 get get to it. Yeah. All right, so let's go to a review of his reasons and our opinions on those reasons, one by one. First, it would make Socrates look guilty and ruin his legacy. I say there's some truth to this. It's similar to when people run from the police and then people ask, if you're innocent, then why did you run? Also, people really respect someone who's willing to die for his beliefs. It gives the philosopher more street cred, as the youths say. And I totally agree. That like, That's a perfect way to, to look at it. Uh, plus, uh, Socrates already agreed to the punishment. Now, how would he look in the eyes of his peers if he went back on his word? How would he be remembered in the history books? Socrates, the great flip-flopper, the spineless Athenian. Not very flattering pictures. And uh, it would bolster the claims of his enemies. They would say, see, we were right to condemn that man. Look at the example he has set for the youth of Athens, running from his fate, running from justice. He really was corrupting them. And so it would have undone all the good he was trying to do for so long. And he said the laws were sacred, so if he's going to go against the laws for his personal benefit, it really ruins everything. And then people could just call him a sophist, and those were his enemies. Exactly, and they could potentially call him a an atheist for saying that, you know, I'm going to run against what the gods want. Oh, do you not believe in the, the strength of the gods, the will of the gods? Do you not believe in the gods at all by just rejecting their will? Yeah, it would have been bad for his case for sure. Next is... Death ain't bad, especially if you lived a virtuous life. Socrates asks Crito what most men, even Persian royalty, would choose when asked to weigh their greatest, most glorious day against their best night's sleep. Socrates suspects that the best night's sleep would usually win out, and he argues that an infinite slumber would be better than any night of sleep any man could experience. He welcomes death as an opportunity to finally rest and drift into a plane of existence where time is meaningless. Now, that's how I imagine death will be. I don't remember the 13 billion years before my atoms got pieced together, and I don't think I'll remember the 13 billions after they disintegrate. But that's just my opinion. You're leaving out his other option of what it could be, of just like going to Hades and being a soul. That's true, and he could he could discuss things with the people down there, which would be a, a, a plus for him. He'd get to ask so many more people so many more questions. Yeah, um, 
I'd say this assertion that death isn't bad is based on your religious views, as you said. Uh, for me, as a Catholic, I would say that heaven is great and hell is terrible. It's not just a neutral kind of situation, as he thought, but it brings up a fair point. What happens to virtuous pagans like Socrates after death? Dante Alighieri, author of the Div Divine Comedy, which includes his famous Inferno, uses Thomistic thinking to place Socrates in limbo. Limbo is the theoretical place where virtuous or innocent souls who were not baptized go. It is like a natural paradise with no pain. In fact, in the Inferno, Socrates attains his idea of paradise, in that he gets to converse with other souls about philosophy and perpetuity. Though Socrates is having a great time, I don't know about the other souls there who have to listen to him for eternity. Yeah, they, they may be in hell and he's in heaven. It's <laughs> a good way to look at it. Okay, thirdly, why bother prolonging life by a few miserable years? This is an extremely pertinent question for modernity. The medical field allows someone to live far longer than their ancestors did. But at what cost? Is it worth it to live an extra year in pain after a painful surgery? At some point, you must accept your fate. I'm not saying that old people should commit suicide. Obviously, definitely don't do that. Not what I'm saying. But just go to confession and settle your affairs and accept your death when it's time. Stop postponing the inevitable beyond reason. Exactly. The quality of life Socrates could have enjoyed would have been minimal, especially without his friends around. Plus, he loved Athens and didn't really want to leave it behind, but we'll get to more on that in the next point. What could a poor, destitute, unlikable old man with no marketable skills do to get by in a brand new city? Not much. He would have been miserable and unable to take care of himself for very long. He'd be Sleepy Joe. That would have been sad. Fourthly, perpetual exile or sinful compromise are worse than death. Now this brings up a lot of good points. Um, it goes back to the ancient Greek conception of the polis. To them, not to not belong to a polis w was to be a nobody. Worse than that, it was subhuman to not belong to a community. Today, this is not the perception. Religious hermits were a regular occurrence in the early period of Christianity, though they were replaced by monastic communities. The Benedict option is seen by many traditional people to be the best option in a secular world. Though this isn't pure isolation, these communities could hardly be called cities or even towns. They would start out more like settlements and stand opposed to established polis. That's, by the way, is the plural of polis. I didn't know that, polis. In addition, many people today choose to live very isolated lives. It is possible to never see anyone and live in a city these days. Just work remotely and have everything delivered. You'll own nothing and you'll love it. And you'll have no friends. His second point is that one should never compromise on one's values, even to the point of death as he did. I agree with this. It should be noted, though, that it is often prudent and right to find a middle path instead of not budging an inch. But if it's very important and compromise is unacceptable, don't compromise. Now, I just thought of this, and I should have added it to the notes, but one quick thing about the uh, the people who don't belong to a polis. Um, look at how many memes and, and how much noise has been made on the internet about the uh, Sigma male, like Sigma male grind set, a man who is completely isolated from almost all society and just works on himself. You know, look how different our ideas are uh, compared to the Greeks. You know, now a lot of men, maybe wrongly, see that as an ideal, as, oh, I'm going to just work on me, go to the gym, make a bunch of money, have no friends, 
And this is the exact opposite of what the Greeks valued. They valued that fraternity and they thought you were literally scum of the earth if you didn't have anyone. You were a barbarian if you didn't have a community. And it's just crazy to see how things have changed. Even the barbarians had communities, like small towns. Of course. Or tribes, at least. So even they were better than a Sigma male today. You know, Socrates would, would absolutely abhor that. You have to think even 100 years ago in America, like, it was a lot, there's a lot more public actions. Like, it was customary for people to have a life outside of their own private gain, jobs, family, a lot of public service, you know, like, Rotary Club and the like. Sure. And a lot of church, going, church volunteering. Or just charitable. fun activities, you know, yeah, going fun, out on the street, dancing. Fun community activities, community life, especially in like an ethnic neighborhood where certain days they'd have processions. When's the last time you've seen a procession? It's been a long time. My church had one. Oh, yeah? A few, like a few months ago. Oh, but cool. It's very rare. Yeah, and it's we're so widespread and, you know, the suburban life is so just sprawling that it's very hard for that many people to get together in a community you know communities are much larger but are they really communities they're not very tight-knit i'm currently reading alexis de tocqueville's democracy in america and i found it striking he said the average american spends like half of their time on public things public affairs and um and for example when? like i think 1830s or so you know politics uh church you know public service that kind of thing like half their time was spent in the public um, sphere. Yeah. And compare that to now, you know, half our time spent watching Netflix. It's a shame. And it's no wonder our communities aren't, aren't as cohesive. Exactly. People don't contribute to the whole. Exactly. Now these days I am leaning more toward, uh, the win at all costs option, as opposed to the uphold your values option when it comes to, uh, the two choices that Socrates had there, especially in the current year, upholding your values just gets you wrecked. And, uh, then your values get replaced by rainbow flags and St. Floyd statues. Now, there's definitely something to be said for sticking to your guns, and in the case of Socrates, I think he made the right call based on the circumstances. He defined himself by his honor, his piety, and his virtue, and so he kind of had to see it through to the end in order to get his message across and quote-unquote win. Had he been a young man, though, death by hemlock would have been a big no for me, dog. But going back to the issue of exile, I can understand his hesitance. Uh, though, again, if he had been younger, he could have adapted much easier to new surroundings. But Athens was his home, and he was pretty patriotic about it. That's fair, I guess. I just don't have the same perspective on community as the ancient Greeks had, which is literally a first world problem. You know, we see ourselves either as individuals or as identity groups, but our countries are too big for us to all feel like we belong. Uh, just pay attention to how the Athenians refer to people of Thessaly, a neighboring city-state perceived as being overindulgent in food and drink. Fifth, it would risk the lives and property of his friends. Now, I will say Crito directly challenges this contention when Socrates says it. He said that he and his friends could get away with it because they're rich, frankly. And getting Socrates away from Athens would still solve the, quote, problem that the Athenian elite despised. Regardless, Crito says that he is willing to suffer for his friend and mentor Socrates. Now, what a great friend. Get you some friends who would be willing to break you out of jail. For real. Uh, the dude was a ride or die, as the kids say. Most likely, they would have gotten away with it, you're right. And Crito had friends in Thessaly that would house him. But he wouldn't have lasted long if he kept up his habit of asking questions. Hence the reason Socrates declined the offer. He knew his nature. He knew how he was. He wasn't going to give it up. Now, the sixth point is deus vult. 
God wills it. How do we know what God's will is? Nobody can know the full plan. So how do you tell when something is fate or just a random event? Do random events even happen or is everything deterministic? Both? Neither? How did Socrates solve that problem, I wonder? Now this is tricky, I'll admit it. It can easily lead to complacency in the expectation that God will do everything for us. That is clearly not the case. However, if something is part of God's positive will, then a virtuous and pious man would not oppose it. So to do the virtuous thing is following God's will. And God wills, God positively wills good things to happen. Yes, so if you're doing something virtuous, it will be God's will. Yes. I would agree. Now, maybe this is a good point uh, in time right here to talk about, for just a brief moment, uh, the little angel on uh, Socrates' shoulder, you know, that would guide him. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's a funny little story there. Yeah, sure. I know it from the, I think it was the uh, Platonic dialogue, Phaedrus, but he was having a conversation with somebody. So he used some sophist arguments to get out of a question, and then he walks away victoriously, and then he just feels like a pull to go back. Like, he was like, like you're not allowed to enter this area if you're playing a video game. Like, the wall, <laughs> the wall is right here. You walk into the empty sky, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he had to go back because he had not followed the truth, and he used sophistry. So likewise, he, he mentions it in a few places. That, and he mentions it in, in this work, too, like in his... Well, in apology, you know, in his monologue, he does mention like I have this 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 drive that prevents me from being dishonest, and that's yeah. what he's talking about, I guess. It's a little angel on his shoulder, like you said, that keeps him from following uh, untruths. It would be really neat if I could have that too. I will say that's that's a superpower I'd like to have. Like if I'm about to do commit sin or follow lies or untruths or exaggerations, if I could just have a little tug, like come on, that's, that's not it. Yeah, and it was like stronger than a conscience. Like he's not saying, "Oh, I don't want to do that," or "Oh, that goes against my values." It was like a, almost a physical sensation, the way he describes a pull, like you said, and that would be an incredible power to have. You're right, because it's it's very hard to follow your conscience when it doesn't have like a physical control over you. But if it could really tug you in the right direction, you'd basically just have to listen. And the further you go away, it starts punching you. You know, so you don't have any choice. Yeah. Oh no, his conscience is is putting him in a headlock. (laughs) Yeah, that would be helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. Now lastly, the seventh point. Laws are sacred, and the state has a duty to enforce them. In a way, Socrates would be echoed by St. Paul centuries later, when he said in Romans 13, Let every soul be subject to higher powers, for there is no power but from God, and those that are, are ordained of God. Therefore he that resisteth this power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist purchase to themselves damnation. For princes are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, fear, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, and avenger to execute wrath upon him that doth evil. So, unless a law goes against your rightly ordered conscience, you should probably follow it. And why would the legislators pass laws and not enforce them? There's lots of laws like that in America. Laws that were passed that aren't enforced. Yeah, like dumb law. They'll make YouTube videos about it. This strange law from 1837 that you can't have, like, ice cream in your pocket or something, you know? Yeah. 
it makes a mockery of the entire legal system when you have laws that you don't enforce. So only pass laws that you're going to enforce. I used to think that the legal system was a tragedy, but now I realize it's a comedy. In all seriousness, though, I reject the idea that the law is somehow ordained by God or the gods or Santa Claus or whoever you, you want to believe in. Those guys may be real or not, but it doesn't matter either way. Man makes laws, and men are capable of great error and evil. The law is only worth following so long as it respects man's nature and allows for a means of self-defense against the state, the court system, uh, when mistakes are inevitably made or the state abuses its power. Some might say it is foolish to expect the state to properly maintain an internal system designed to keep itself in check, but hey, it's the best we've got. Please, point to a better solution. And Kapistan? Oh, you mean that place that never existed and never will? The one that shares borders with real communism land in Wakanda? Get out of my sight. But it does bring up a point. Like, if people just decide on their own to follow the laws or not, and that's just okay in society's eyes, that's just anarchy. You're right. You're right. And so there has to be some sort of delineation there between laws that you must respect and laws that you can't in good conscience respect and should resist. And it's hard to know. You know, it's a fine line. And, and I think if we could all agree on where that line was, life would be a lot easier, right? But obviously we can't. It all comes back to our value systems. So I guess my advice would be make sure that your value system is, has proven workability, has like a historical precedent, and uh, make sure it has good outcomes. And you'll know this is probably a good system. So then I'll judge everything based on that system. Now, let me say, just to conclude this section... That the same situation, in a way, happened to Aristotle. People don't know this, but he was teaching in Athens. And, you know, he was a teacher to Alexander the Great. But after Alexander the Great, you know, became an adult and went off, he just went back to life in Athens. And he had a school there. And But then when Alexander the Great died, suddenly, there was a lot of chaos. And he knew, since he was closely allied to Alexander, that he was going to be a target of, like, pro-Greek uh, actors in the state who pro- didn't want to be ruled by Macedon. Oh, I was going to say pro-Greek as opposed to uh, uh, pro-Macedonian. Yes. So what did he do? Did he stand in court um, and accept defeat by a jury of his peers? Did he? No, he fled. <laughs> he fled until the situation cooled down. I think he actually died in Macedonia. Wow. So just saying Socrates might not have a monopoly on what the right solution is sometimes it may be best to run and in in aristotle's defense he left before he was before charges were brought against him there you go he was just taking a vacation yeah duh (laughs) okay now let's just briefly discuss the wit and humor of socrates in the face of death socrates eviscerates the prosecution by trapping him in inconsistencies he doesn't even flinch when found guilty he just keeps monologuing like a boss Upon his guilty verdict, he proposes that the city of Athens provide him free meals for life as punishment, and then he promises that others will follow in his footsteps and keep the Athenian elite in check. While in prison, he is sleeping soundly despite his imminent death. He wonders why Crito is upset about his doom. He compares himself to a gadfly, thereby implying that he is annoying AF. And he probably dabbed at some point. Citation needed. And despite such a tragic loss, he basically became the father of Western philosophy. That we can agree on. 
Finally, should everyone read these dialogues, and why are they the first books assigned in the Great Books of the Western World reading plan? They are both short and very easy to read, surprisingly. They are way easier than Plato's Republic, but it still has a lot of lessons. So start with a shorter dialogue like this before the Republic. They help people reconcile death, which comes to all of us. Very important to consider that. They give us a taste of logic and rhetoric, and help ease us into denser material. They give us an example of manly virtue. Lying and cowardice are abominable. I was unable to find out why these two works are assigned first in the Great Books list. However, I have some guesses. I might have to email these people and get a real answer, but for now this is just my guess. It would be a good idea to put a well-known author first so people could easily access the works and be motivated to do it. They are short and easy, as we said. In the Great Conversations curriculum, each year starts with the oldest and goes to the newest material, then starts over the next year. Apology and Crito really put the stakes of philosophy on display. Philosophy does not have to be in the clouds, to quote Socrates' big critic. You can die for this stuff. It's no joke. Here are our takeaways. Socrates and Plato are gifts to mankind, and their works and their speeches and their ideas are the gifts that keep on giving. Death comes to us all. Tempus fugit, memento mori. What does that mean? Time flies, remember death. Justice and virtue are worth fighting for and thinking about. The big topics should be discussed in the public forum more instead of meaningless current events. That's not directed at any particular outlet. Lastly, read Apology and Crito. In fact, just read everything Plato and Aristotle wrote. What else are you going to do? Watch your favorite NFL team lose to Tom Brady again. <laughs> they got him. Sports ball fans mad AF. Time now for our lingering questions. Is Socrates less well-known among laymen than Plato or Aristotle? If so, is this simply because he never wrote any texts of his own? Would he have been completely obscured by Plato and Aristotle without the trial? What do you think? Yeah, I think without the trial, he would have just been another... Well, we have pre-Socratic philosophers. Sure. So there's a whole, like, the whole era of philosophy is named in reference to Socrates, pre-Socratics and post-Socratics. So he kind of defined it. But if he hadn't died, I mean, he might have just been listed as one of those pre-Socratics, but pre, maybe those pre-Aristotelians, I don't know. Yeah. Someone else. I think it really stands out that he died. Because otherwise, if Plato hadn't written it down, we, we wouldn't have known anything. Yeah, we would never would have heard the speech because he never would have been on trial. And, you know, the emphasis would not have been put on his life and his work necessarily. So, yeah, if it wasn't for Plato, no one would know anything about Socrates. That's true. So thanks, Plato, wherever you are. Thank you for that. Can you think of any other famous men or women who have suffered the same fate as Socrates? Were their circumstances similar? If we're talking about real life people, yeah, there have been plenty of people who have been on trial you know, wrongfully accused of something. Jesus Christ comes to mind. Jesus, O.J. Simpson, um, <laughs> Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, so many names. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, though, uh, yeah, Jesus is probably one of the bigger ones, and um, if not the biggest. And it's very interesting that so many big names in Western philosophy and just Western like religion have been martyrs for you know their cause their beliefs 
And uh, their ideas that when you really think about it, we're not hurting anyone, you know, I, I mean, at all. Like, that's debatable. It depends know. on the philosopher. Ideas have consequences. This is true. Can I'm, you say like Karl Marx wasn't hurting anybody just because he was talking? But was he put on trial? I he mean, should have been. <laughs> should have been put in a gulag. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking about the, I'm put, trying to put emphasis at least on on people who were good guys, virtuous people, preaching a virtuous philosophy who were wrongfully done, dealt a bad hand, you know, and that kind of elevates their status in our eyes. That's what, that's the only thing I was trying we to. We love martyrs. Yeah. That's for sure. Now, is there a modern day Socrates? Is it really Joe Rogan? <laughs> Man, it's, I just don't understand why you don't do drugs. <laughs> yeah, I don't think... I don't think Socrates ever did LSD, uh, but if he did, Joe Rogan would be his clone. That's for sure. One final question. Is his name really Socrates? The real questions. <laughs> yeah, we only ask the hard questions. We only have the hottest takes and the toughest questions on the Sons of Antiquity podcast. You know, from what you're telling me, Socrates is is used by academics. Some. Yeah, some. I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll test it out. Maybe we'll do a real life thing in this episode. You know, after it airs, we'll go into an academic setting and just say Socrates. And if anyone laughs, then we know that it's not Socrates. It's just Socrates. Or if we somehow get a gig, a speaking gig, because, you know, we get emails all the time, you know, trying to get us to appear at different events. We will name drop Socrates and see about the crowd's reaction. Just get a big academic to start using it. And then everyone before long we'll be using it sure <laughs> do you have anything else to add i think that is all awesome that's all for today's show join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom <laughs>